Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. The emotion. And Dortmund against all the odds. Our European champions. Hello, welcome to Believe in Borussia, our second episode. My name is Tilo. This is your Borussia Dortmund podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. And I just want to say thank you for tuning in and for following us on Twitter, on Instagram. And if you haven't done that, please do so. I'm sure Dortmund fans everywhere will be doing the same. You can find us at, at Believe in Borussia. That's Believe as in B-L-E-A-V in Borussia. And also, thank you for your feedback. We got some really great comments like, um, let me see. And I quote, really nice, I didn't know what to expect, but this was very well done, a good combination of tone, production value, and substantive content that I would gladly keep listening. Yeah, great, thank you, Mr. Um, Panik Pansen, yeah. Um, or a great dose of BBB content, had a great drive home, I can't wait for the next episode. Fantastic, and Sean from Atlanta wrote, as a relatively quote-unquote new American-based fan, This series is going to be such a great way to help me learn more about the culture surrounding the best football club in the world, Borussia Dortmund. A great blend of topical coverage and historical deep dive. Well, what can I say? We really appreciate these comments. They are great motivation to keep on churning out quality content for you guys. And also special shout out to my friend Devin, who apparently shared this podcast with anyone that ever uttered the word Borussia Dortmund in his presence. So thank you for that support and let's get right into it. We got another great one for you today. We're going to talk finances. We're going to give you some injury updates and then also think about why some of these young academy products seem increasingly more injury prone than they used to be. And then we're going to take the latest bombshell that's rocking German soccer right now in the active fan scene to talk a little bit about the troubled history of Dietmar Hopp, Hoffenheim, Germany Ultras, Borussia Dortmund and the German FA. So buckle up. So let's start with the numbers. Uh, Thomas Tress, the CEO of Borussia Dortmund, told the Ruhrnachricht in an interview that the club has set up credit lines of up to $140 million for the next two years. So far, they have tapped into $33 million of that. And this is obviously due to the COVID pandemic and the accrued losses that all teams suffer. The club also announced contract extensions for Thomas Tress, Hans-Joachim Watzke and Karsten Kramer. Their contracts were bound to run out next year, but now they've been extended till 2025, giving some extra continuity and stability in these uncertain times. It's good to have you back. BVB closed the last fiscal year with a loss of $50 million roundabout, and that was only four months of COVID in that fiscal year. So now with a full year, I don't think you need to be a profit, 
that the losses will be much higher than that. Hans-Joachim Watzke, the CEO of Borussia Dortmund, said that Dortmund loses approximately three to four million euros a match day. So that's four, four and a half million dollars or something like that. But they also sell less merch. There's a drop in sponsoring. There's no tours to our detriment. So there's no tours in Asia, in the US, and other sponsoring activities that you do around match days. There's a drop in revenue from TV rights. Um, Sky, the domestic league partner of the Bundesliga, had paid less because they got less. So if you add all that up, it's not surprising that Borussia Dortmund is seeking additional credit line and securities. Per the Deloitte Money League, the match day revenue alone in 2019 was $70 million for the year. So what does it all mean? Well, everybody's hurting, but the club is still in good shape. I mean, they're absorbing a potential loss of, what, $100 million with a $30 million credit so far. So that's not too bad. It helps the club stay flexible, which is important to act from a position of strength in the upcoming transfer window. Um, contrary to popular belief, Dortmund can actually wait to ship out players. It's not like we always want to sell everybody right off and make a profit, which, by the way, we haven't done in two years. We actually net invested into players and not gotten money out of the transfer market. So it's still going to be crucial to make the Champions League, of course. But then I don't see Sancho Haaland leaving unless the price is right, as Manchester United found out last summer. Haaland was just on the Norwegian news and because he's, you know, with the Norwegian national team right now. And he said that he wasn't sad about having a couple of more years on contract with Dortmund. So translating that type of Norwegian understatement for you, that means I'm actually pretty good where I am right now in Dortmund. And after how things went with Norway this weekend, where he also got quite a lot of flack in the press... I think he might be even more happy to return to Dortmund where he actually has been scoring despite a rocky season and has individually a lot of success and good moments. Sancho might be a different story. I mean, he's an English lad that wants to return to England probably sooner than later. He's upheld his end of the bargain with us for the last four years and counting and the club might be more willing to accommodate his request on a personal level. But still, he's not going to leave for peanuts and... If the club doesn't have to sell, they won't sell. So generally, I like the move. I think it's making the best out of a really bad situation. And if we hopefully make the top four, it'll give us a lot more flexibility and bargaining power down the road. Well, to make the top four, we're going to need some fresh players and we're going to need healthy players. So let's look at that. Um, first and foremost, Rafa Guerrero is back with the team in Dortmund, which is good news because despite not playing for Dortmund for a couple of weeks, the Portuguese FA thought it's a great idea to invite him out to the international break into the Portugal camp. Well, guess what? They figured out that, hey, he's actually injured for real and sent him back to Dortmund where he's now rehabbing and hopefully will be back sooner than later. I'm just glad they didn't try anything crazy and put him on for 20 minutes and then realize, oh, it's actually really bad and then Rafa's out for the rest of the season. So I think we dodged a bullet there and I'm very glad that the Portuguese FA um, made that move and sent him back. So kudos. Thank you. Now our striker wonderboy Yusufa Mukuku has been out. Um, he's currently with the under-21 of German national team um, playing for the Euro qualifications and he's missed the first and apparently the second game. Let's hope it's nothing too serious and he will be back once the league returns April 3rd because he is a very valuable option, I think, um, and gives us something in our attack that we otherwise don't have. One player that would definitely and unfortunately not be back 
is Zagadu. He's out for the rest of the season. He underwent surgery again, and it's really tragic. The boy's oozing potential. He's an amazing physical specimen of a center back. What a physical force, and he's also quite a decent soccer player, but he cannot stay healthy, he cannot stay on the pitch, and he needs, for his development, games. And it's wild because he's so young, he's physically strong, but yet he and a bunch of other players seem to pick up these serious injuries, even though they don't have that many miles on their tires yet. And it sort of reminded me of an article I read a little while back on ESPN about the rising numbers of serious knee injuries with young basketball players. So basically the article went, the professionalization of youth basketball through AAU and the early specialization on one sport puts a very monotonous strain on the body. Think about Michael Jordan, you know, yeah, he was playing basketball in high school and he was cut and everybody knows that, but he was also playing baseball and probably football. And these different types of sports and movements also put different types of questions to the body and strengthened and, you know, mobilized, I guess, different parts of the body and made you more well-rounded athlete in a sense. But now all these players are focusing so early on only one sport, may it be soccer or may it be basketball, and they're only doing certain motions and they don't strengthen the core enough. In the article, they interview the biomechanical wizard, Dr. Michael Clark, and he basically says it's like putting a Ferrari engine into a hybrid. I don't know, like a Toyota Camry or something. The frame just can't handle the pressure of the engine. This article is called something like, they are ticking time bombs. And I quote Dr. Michael Clark, think about it as the tip of the iceberg. What you see on top of the water is really skillful, very athletic kids, especially now, even in high school. You get a sophomore that can do a 360 degree dunk, whereas 20 years ago, you never saw that. You see kind of good outcome, which is improved skill, improved athleticism. But down below, their movement quality is suffering and a lot of these kids just move absolutely terrible. You're like, how can a kid jump 38 inches when they can't even stand on one leg? I definitely see some parallels here. Um, take the PSG Academy, for example, where, you know, Zagadou is from. You don't get to go to the PSG Academy by messing around. Now, what I mean by that is that I don't think it's very likely that at 14 or 15, Dan Axel Zagadou was still, I don't know, trying out sports, swimming, fencing, bull, beach volleyball. But he was probably super focused already and playing soccer all day and all night. If you weren't already playing at the academy you probably were in another laser-focused program, which means more practices, more games, I don't know, UEFA, Youth League, and so on and so forth. So yeah, so you get to those Ferrari engines with the Toyota Camry brakes and suspensions, and that's going to be a problem. If you look at it, you got Zagadou with this history of injuries. You have Kuasi at Bayern right now, who's also 18. He's been out since December, I think, uh, with a muscle injury that stemmed from a previous earlier muscle injury. And does that sound familiar? Well, our new centre-back signing from the PSG Academy, Koulibaly, is 17 and he has an ACL injury. Look, I wasn't there and I don't know how it went down and I know accidents happened. But to me, I really wonder, was it a say, Paul George-like free crash? Or was it sort of like a Julius Randle out-of-the-blue injury? I don't know if you remember, but if you don't, Julius Randle, he's now playing for the Knicks, but he was drafted by the Lakers. And in his debut game, in his very, very first game, he was going to the rim, pushing off, and then his leg 
just gave in. It just broke. In his very first pro game, that's sort of the physical, the body equivalent of a basketball player able to do fancy dunks, but then can't shoot free throws. And again, I'm not privy to the training plans and the information of how these accidents or these injuries happened. But I do wonder why there's more and more young players like that that pick up these serious injuries without actually having played many games. And this could be an explanation. So Google it, have a read, make up your own mind. In other news, ZDF, the second largest broadcaster in Germany, dropped a bombshell this week with a soccer documentary. And this will have serious consequences. Basically, Hoffenheim, their billionaire owner Dietmar Hopp, Bayern Munich and the German FA all teamed up to stage a supposedly spontaneous declaration of solidarity for Hopp amidst the Hoffenheim-Bayern game in 2020 after the Bayern Ultras directed a crude banner at Hopp. They call him a mofo. Um, I don't know how else to translate it. Hijo de puta. Hijo de puta. There's more to that banner than meets the eye. At the backstory, there's a league-wide history of Hopp getting into it with basically all ultras and active fan groups in Germany and somehow having become the face of everything that's wrong with commercialization according to the ultras in, in German soccer. And I'm going to try to give you that context as concise and quick as possible even though it really touches on a lot of different fields. Um, it is a fascinating story and it does involve Borussia Dortmund quite a lot because of reasons I will get into detail in a moment. So let's have a look what went down and why this is such a interesting revelation that the ZDF presented there. You're seeing history here, but it's not good history. So Dietmar Hopp is an incredibly successful and wealthy businessman. He's the founder of SAP, a German-based global software conglomerate, and he's a billionaire because of it. Europe's uh, largest software company, SAP. And he's also a big soccer fan. So he wanted to own a soccer club. So he made investments, propositions around Germany to teams. And from what I remember, it was teams that had fallen on hard times, but a considerable large fan support still, at least in their region. But for whatever reason, no one took the bait. And I can only imagine, considering that nobody likes to turn away free money, that Hop in return probably wanted a substantial say in the business of the club. And I mean, I can understand it to an extent, considering, you know, if you're in top shoes, you're saying, look, I built a billion dollar empire. I know how to run a company. I know why your club, you know, needs my money. And if I give it to you, I want to be involved in how it gets invested because I know how to do it best. Now, again, obviously I wasn't a flyer on all these conversations, but I don't think it's a complete stretch of the imagination to think that. So anyway, no club, as I said, bit, and he refocused his activities on his boyhood club in his hometown or rather home village, Hoffenheim. And he started pouring not millions, but hundreds of millions of dollars into this six, seven division team. I have no idea where they started, but they started pretty low. And basically within a couple of years, pushed him into the first division of German soccer. Now that pissed a lot of other teams and their fans off who don't have a sugar daddy, but have poured their heart and souls into their teams over decades. 
Look, there's only 36 spots in the first two divisions of German professional soccer and if you are pushing in a new one, an old one will fall off. Now that's set especially wrong with the fans of the traditional clubs, the Traditionsklubs, teams that have a rich history in the large fan base, such as Dortmund. Because they said, hey, you're cutting corners with money, toppling structures and support that we've built step by step over a hundred years. You're artificially inflating your club that no one really needed or wanted, while there are dozens of clubs out there that have like hundreds of thousands of fans and they are dying to get back into the top flight. Even worse, you're breaking or at the very minimal circumventing the 50 plus 1 rule that says members of the club have to be the majority owner of a club. This is a very specific rule to Germany, the 50 plus 1 rule, and it's designed to prevent foreign investor takeovers or investor takeovers period of the clubs in Germany. Now this rule has been already abused or banned by other clubs and their owners, in particular Wolfsburg and Leverkusen, that are basically owned by Volkswagen and the Bayer AG respectively. It's only cheating if you get caught. <laughs> so while Dortmund as one of the traditional clubs, quote unquote, is doing relatively okay, other traditional teams like 1860 Munich, which was a founding member of the Bundesliga instead of Bayern Munich, or for example Kaiserslautern, who had great teams in the past, they simply aren't. And they're already struggling, and at the rate of clubs that aren't well-supported fan-wise, but are financially very well-supported, such as Wolfsburg, Hoffenheim, or with this new investor money like uh, Red Bull Leipzig, it has now actually ballooned to four to five teams that are using that money to play at a league that they wouldn't be able to support without their investors, and that pushes four to five other teams out of the picture. So there's a certain solidarity among ultras of all clubs because it can affect your club next. And it even includes the Bayern fans, most prominently the Schickeria, which is Bayern's top ultra group, who led the protests in that Hoffenheim game. What also really pushed the issue is that the German FA, on behalf of Hoffenheim, started dishing out collective punishments again. So what that means is instead of, say, finding the 5 to 10 people that were holding said banner, they'll just ban the whole block of 100 fans or 200 fans or 300 away fans, whatever, for a couple of years from attending any games. Now, that is a legally rather questionable concept, you know, being made liable for someone else's action just because you're somehow, I don't know, related to them or look like them or dressed like them. I mean, hello, racial profiling. And the practice raised fury all across the fan scenes in Germany because the FA president had promised to cease doing this practice only three years prior. And because they gave out collective punishments against two Dortmund fans, um, other fan scenes basically considered, hey, this is a declaration of war. Like, if you're doing this to one fan scene, you're going to do it to our fan scene. And to be fair, we're also not a fan of Hop and that model. So you're going to come after us next. So, you know, we'll do a preemptive strike or will keep on voicing our discontent in the stadiums and gonna call that BS out. As Matt Ford wrote in a recent article for copper90.com, the flags, banners, flares and confetti seen in stadiums across Germany are not only the product of weeks and weeks of preparation and organization, they also represent something which goes much deeper, is much less tangible. They're an expression of agency, engagement and involvement, the difference between passive consumption and active support of a football club. So, at this Hoffenheim-Bayern game, the Bayern Ultras, like many other fan groups before them, rolled out their banners, calling Hopp a 
the Bayern fans unfurl that banner one more time, the game will be terminated. Taking this a step back again, I'm I'm not sure whether Hop underestimated the pushback in general or whether he just didn't care about it, but he sure doesn't take kindly to it. Even before this game, he started suing fans left and right. He called on the German FA to intervene on his behalf and things became more and more personal from all parties involved. When Hoffenheim came into the league, I do remember reading a lot of critical but not insulting banners. I read a lot of blogs and communication from ultras and fan organizations that voiced their concern. But mainstream media didn't really pick up on these concerns. And neither did many of the soccer officials that were involved that they're voicing their criticism too. So whether it was an act of frustration or deliberate provocation to get a bigger platform and to be more seen, when the whole conflict further escalated, it became more of a proxy war and not just about the case against Dietmar Hopp, but also who gets to say what gets said in the stands across arenas all over Germany. So it became more and more complex in a sense and involved more and more stakeholders, which just made the whole thing messier and bigger than maybe it needed to be. What's really odd is that, that it seems that Dietmar Hopp has no problems dishing out and going after fans. One absolute lowlight is having the groundkeeper of the Hoffenheim Stadium bringing a noise machine to cancel out the insulting chants from the visiting Dortmund fans. And some of these fans actually suffered hearing losses and physical harm. Now, per the official investigation, Hopp distanced himself from being involved in the incident and it was all blamed on the groundkeeper. But honestly, I personally find that hard to believe, considering this was a rather big machine and it happened in his stadium that he built and paid for that bears the name of his company. It's located at Dietmar Hopp Street. Hopp keeps close tabs on a team that he pumps 100 millions in. And apparently, he keeps even closer tabs on opposing fans and what they say about it. Now, ironically, one of the most popular anti-BVB chants goes la-di-la-di-la-di-la-di-da, BVB, mother mmm. And it's also been sang many times by Hoffenheim fans in Simsheim. Now, I'm personally not aware of any individual BVB fans or the club pressing legal matters in that or any other of the probably hundreds of cases of this song being chanted across Stadia in Germany. Dietmar Hopp's lawyer in the documentary explained that the legal premise of like insults is a very personal one and he basically suggests that Hopp feels deeply hurt more so than others, which is why he acts on it. Now, It's absolutely his right to defend himself legally. And I'm also pretty sure that the hate that has been unearthed brings up some pretty violent, absolutely inappropriate moments for him. Like, some fans are really crazy. Like, that's no joke. If you ever experience something like cyber mobbing or just, you know, a certain fan base of, I don't know, a pop singer or, or a rap artist or whatever turning against a certain person or a certain product, that can actually create a lot of pressure on someone. But he seems to try to quench the flames by pouring more oil on it. Like, I honestly cannot gauge how crazy it all got and, you know, who drove what. But seeing the results, it doesn't seem that anyone is really happy with what has happened. Oh, you hate to see that. So why was this game so special? Well, apparently, Bayern officials briefed all parties involved. That is Hopp, Hoffenheim, the DFB, which is the German FA, and the media a couple of days prior. So instead of stopping it, they let it go. So when the Ultras unrolled their banner, what followed 
wasn't a spontaneous show of courage and solidarity, but it was more a cue to state an example and draw the line. You over there, the rebel in the stands, and we here, the noble and good people. Now, I remember when it happened, I immediately saw notifications pop up everywhere. And at the time, I didn't think much of it, but in retrospect, the speed in which the news proliferated and the message and the way it was portrayed, now it feels a little tainted, because when I tuned in the game, I expected to see like burning stands and a raging mob going crazy. And again, I'm not advocating, I'm not saying like that's, please burn down a stadium or, or do anything crazy or I want to see that level of violence. But the drama level in the notification and in the news and in the in the in the information that popped up, it just seemed like that. It just seemed like so over the top that I was like, oh my God, what is happening? A day of shame. And instead what I saw was... The least they could do is have a keepy uppy competition, I think. Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, the head of the board at Bayern Munich and Dietmar Hopp, trying to be really weirdly close with each other. Like, like I remember one scene where Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, I think you see it in the documentary too, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge is sort of like trying to grab Dietmar Hopp's hand when they're walking onto the pitch and then Hopp, loses it and then they try again and then I guess Hop decides nah actually I don't want to be holding hand that's a little too much and then he puts it in his pocket and then Rummenig turns around again and, and, and looks for his hand and sees he's not giving it to him so then uh, it, it's weird it's really weird and overall it was was it was a kind of awkward situation it already felt a little off but I mean back then and there I didn't think of it much and I couldn't put the finger on it um The referee interrupted the game because of the banners. That's it, the referee's taking the teams off. And a new rule mechanism, this so-called three-step plan was developed to get a handle of yeah, racial abuse and racism in the stadium and discrimination of minorities by pausing or at the final stage aborting the game. I guess the first one is um, and make an announcement, the second one is uh, pause the game and the third is aborting it. But anyway... I think it's a little odd that this has been triggered for only one single person so far that has suffered from, well, street-level insults, but otherwise essentially is not a minority. Um, well, if you don't count privately owning a Bundesliga team and being a billionaire. He is definitely the only one in that club. Other than that, despite racism and discrimination popping up in Stadia and Germany still here and there, I've never seen it enacted and enforced after or before. The German FA must have clearly instructed the refs pre-game and, and you kind of wonder where that sort of enthusiasm to enforce the rules is when it concerns other things, say like racism or sexism or homophobia. I should also note that Christian Heidel, um, the current Mainz manager and former Schalke and former Mainz manager, criticized Hopp when he was at Mainz back in the days and Hoffenheim for basically powerlifting the club into the first division. Hobbs' reaction? He wrote an open letter claiming that the remarks made were discriminatory and he demanded from the German FA, which he CC'd basically, to sanction these remarks the same way that they would sanction racist remarks. Again, I find it a little hard to stomach when an old white billionaire is trying to play the racism card. It just makes me think that the diversity training at SAP is just a little off. But okay. When the game, after it was paused, eventually continued after 20 minutes of players and coaches telling the fans to take on the banners and, you know, everybody clapping and showing solidarity, the players just passed the ball around midfield. Bayern was already up 6-0 at that point anyway. So I get the feeling that we're going to see a quarter of an hour 
of the two sides just kicking the ball around. Yeah, that's the best thing what they can do. Hassan Salihamidzic is holding up six fingers. He's always six nil up. What is the point? And I remember the game commentator on Sky trying to basically outdo himself and finding superlatives of calling out how horrible the ultras are. It was it was really bizarre in a sense. In fact. The commentator openly states in the documentary that club sources had tried to frame his reporting pre-game by providing, unasked, a list of fabulous deeds of Dietmar Hopp. Now, now picture this, you're like, you know, you're usually a reporter, so you ask your club source, hey, what about this injury and this and that and the player and is he informed and what can we expect? And then out of the blue sky, this person is like, well... This guy is on the injury list. And by the way, Dietmar Hopp, did you know that, I don't know, he bought a children's ward at a hospital or donated 20 million to this or that? Apparently, that's what went down. So at the time, during and after the game, I personally found it all a bit over the top. It was an escalation, clearly. But, you know, escalations, they can happen. When opposing views clash and you don't find common ground and get together, then something lets go of the pressure and that's when it escalates. But knowing now... That it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment effect, but basically they used the banners as vehicle to stage a solidarity show for Dietmar Hopp from Bayern officials and the German FA, that makes it a little off-putting to me. Now, full disclosure, I do think there is some validity to the criticism that Hopp has earned for the model that he established at Hoffenheim. But at the very same time, I do not condone any of the hate and the violence directed against him. What I've always been missing is and I mean, I might have really missed it, is that any official, whether at Hoffenheim, the German FA, or apparently even Bayern, has acknowledged in some sort of form parts of the justified criticism, or if not at least factually tried to dispute it. But Hopp has said he has no interest in talking with the ultras or having any dialogue. He has been dismissive of it, as far as I can remember. Instead, he's sending out his lawyers to drop lawsuit after lawsuit. Now, if you take the gloves off, you shouldn't be surprised if they're coming off at the other end as well. Now, I don't know who escalated first, and I have too little details and, and knowledge to argue what is justified and what is not. And I don't think necessarily insults are justified, period. What I do know is that Hobbs company, SAP, is a main partner of the German FA and is also a main partner of Bayern Munich. They're building a new arena together for hockey and the Bayern Munich basketball team in Munich, a multi-million dollar arena. So I'm really not that sure about the purity of their intentions either here. What is really the cherry on top of a very, very weird Sunday is that the documentary reveals that the German FA vice president Rainer Koch suggested, and now get this, to infiltrate the fan blog with undercover PIs. That's right. Reinhard Grindel, who was the president of the FA back then, claims that Koch suggested to him to send them undercover people to film the ultras and eventually break up the organization by yeah, infiltrating them in some kind of form. At that point, it really becomes quite an unholy union and that's something where I can understand that there are certain frustration with fans. Now, if you're capable of understanding German, I highly recommend you to go to ZDF, go into the Mediathek, and look for this documentary. I hope you have a better understanding now of all the parties involved and why this is such a complex case and also why it's such a hotly debated one. Now, I think it's no secret that Borussia Dortmund itself was also critical of the model. 
and its fans were one of the most outspoken when it came to Hop. That's what set everything off, really, when the German FA dished out collective punishment against Borussia Dortmund and the rest of the German fan scenes joined the protest out of solidarity. Now, the last thing I want to say is that I think the German fan culture in general and the Borussia Dortmund fan culture in particular are very rare goods. And the league knows it. If you've ever read one of their pieces on their website, it'll surely make a reference to the amazing atmosphere and the fans in Germany. If you see one of their pitch decks, there will be an image of the yellow wall or of some other stand or fan section in the German league. It's one of its main selling points. And part of this fan culture is that these fans are organized and they're opinionated and they want to be heard and they want to have a say. So if you want to maintain this special relationship, this commitment, this passion, then you need to acknowledge these fans and you need to talk with them. This isn't about taking sides. This is about coming back to the table and talking to each other instead of talking over each other's heads, suing each other, insulting each other. If you're really proud of your fandom, you should want to protect it and work together with the people that actually want to work with you and have a dialogue. Because if the moderate voices aren't heard anymore, they're going to turn away and they're going to leave the field to the crazy ones. And then you end up in a mess like this. Hoffenheim nil, Bayern München 6. But the consequences for this one will be felt long after. Well, that's it. That was podcast number two. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you found it informative. I hope you were entertained. If you were, please drop us a rating and a review on Apple Podcast or on Spotify or simply write us something nice on Twitter or on Instagram. We always love to hear your feedback. And enjoy your Easter weekend, and I hear you next week. Until then, a black and yellow shout-out across America. They've done it! Incredible! Unbelievable! Astonishing! Dortmund dances! Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.